If you haven't turned there yet, go to Psalm 63. Psalm 63. I'm going to read it for you right here, and then we'll jump in. I'm going to, read the, I'm going to start with the title, because that's important too. It says, A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live in your hand. I will, in your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But Those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be apportioned for jackals, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. All right, I do want to start with the title of the psalm because it's actually really helpful for what is happening in this psalm. It says, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Judah. So we learn that this psalm is written by David, and it is written while he is in the wilderness. So the question is, okay, why is David in the wilderness? And if you look at verse 9, it actually gives us some context for what is happening here. David says, but those who seek to destroy my life. So here we have David. He's in the wilderness, and there are people who are trying to kill him. So the natural question here is, okay, who's trying to kill David and why? Well, there are two possibilities here. The first possibility is one that many of you are probably familiar with, is that time, that season, when David ran from Saul because Saul was trying to assassinate him. So David hides in the caves, and he tries to protect himself from Saul. But the more prominent belief in this text, in Psalm 63, is that this is after that incident with King David and King Saul. Because in verse 11, we are told that this happens while David is king. Verse 11, it says, but the king shall rejoice in God. So here's a question, a little Bible trivia. Was there a time while David was king where he was driven into the wilderness? And the answer to that is yes, during the rebellion of his son, Absalom. Absalom. So David's own son rebels against him, and David is driven into hiding into the wilderness. And that word wilderness is important, right? And so I want to talk about that for a moment because it's significant all throughout the Bible. Sometimes that word wilderness can be translated to desert. And so why is the wilderness such an important theme in scripture? I want to look at a few moments because I think if we understand this, if we understand this, it will help us grasp the state of David's soul here in Psalm 63. And it's going to be so helpful for us because I'm willing to bet that there are many of you who feel what we just read about what David said, that there are many of you who, you may not be ready to admit it, but you feel the weight of it. You understand what David is 
saying. And so to understand it, though, we have to understand the wilderness. One of the first places the wilderness is mentioned in the Bible is when Moses leads the people of God out of Egypt. There's the exodus out of Egypt into the wilderness, right? And so, and then hundreds of years later, the people of God, they're disobedient. They're pursuing other gods, the gods of sensuality, the gods of violence. And God says, okay, if you love those gods so much, I'm going to send you to the capital of gods. I'm going to send you to Babylon. So they're exiled to Babylon. And it was in Babylon when the people of God realized, we don't want this. These gods don't satisfy. And the prophet Isaiah told the people of God, people of God, that another exodus was coming. Okay. He's going to send them out of Babylon and he's going to send them where? Into the wilderness, that there's going to be a time when you leave Babylon, when you walk away from something and you walk into the wilderness, it's going to be a place where you're going to journey back into relationship with God. And then you see that word wilderness at the beginning of the gospels. In Mark chapter one, verse two, it says, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So John the Baptist appears on the scene. He's in the wilderness. It says in verse four, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So when John the Baptist shows up, he's preparing the stage for Jesus's ministry and he sets up shop in the wilderness, right? And then in verse five, it says that People are coming into the wilderness to be baptized. It says all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. That time and time again, we see that when God wants to prepare his people for something, when God wants to prepare his people for something, he would send them into the wilderness in times of repentance, that the people of God would go into the wilderness and that it's in the wilderness where God meets you to refresh the person of God, to strengthen the person of God. And in, Mark's, in Mark, the message is, if you want to meet the king that is coming, then you have to walk away from something. You have to walk away from something and you have to walk into something. Just like the pe- people of Israel walked out of Babylon, away from their fa- false idols, they looked around, I don't know if you feel this, you looked around at this system and you said, this doesn't work. This world doesn't satisfy and they walked into the wilderness where their hearts could be centered on God, where they could be satisfied by God. That the wilderness is this idea of this, it's stripping away of all the things that we think can satisfy us. And it's putting on the only one who can. And in Mark, John the Baptist is calling people to repent, to walk away from something, and to walk into the wilderness where you can meet God. And then just a few verses later, after Jesus is baptized, it says the spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness. In verse 12, it says the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days. So Jesus just doesn't jump into his ministry right away, but the spirit drives him into the wilderness. Why? Because it's in the wilderness where God strengthens us. And the Holy Spirit, God inside of us, is constantly reminding us, you need me, you need him, you need him, you need him. And it's in the wilderness where we realize just how needy we are. It's where we realize we need water from the rock. We need manna from 
heaven, that we don't come in, we don't come to God with all of our stuff and go, see, see how valuable I am to you? We go with empty hands. That's what the wilderness does. It empties our hands, that you walk into the wilderness dropping everything that you think makes you important and valuable, and you walk out holding on to nothing but hope and faith in God. One of the most dramatic and stunning examples of this is in the book of Hosea. Hosea is this startling book where he compares, where God compares Israel to a prostitute. He says, Israel, you are married to me, but you keep cheating on me. And it's this beautiful story how God is going to reconcile his bride with himself. And here's what he says in Hosea 2.14. He says, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness. And what does he do there? He says, and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. That word allure, it means to entice or to seduce. That God says, I will entice you. I will seduce you. That God will woo you. And where will he take his bride? He takes her to the wilderness. And that doesn't sound very romantic, does it? Like husbands, if you were to take your wife, say, hey, we're going to go in the desert. We're going to eat some sand, right? No, I mean, in the desert, you're, you're thirsty, you're hungry, you're needy. But he says, it's in that place. It's in that place. I will speak tenderly to her that when you come to him empty, look, he does not speak to you harshly. When you come to him with nothing, he does not speak to you harshly. There is no voice of condemnation there. He does not speak to you as if you're guilty. His voice is soft. His presence is comforting. And he says, I'm going to give her her vineyards. I will take what's empty and I will put in its place vineyards, which vineyards is always connected with joy. Where there is a vineyard, there is joy. And you see something very similar in Isaiah 32, verse 14. It says, for the palace is forsaken. The populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys. He says, in the wilderness, there's nothing there. There's nothing. It's just donkeys, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, until, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a force. Do you see it? So I wonder, before we jump into the meat of Psalm 63, I wonder if you feel the weight of the wilderness in your own life. Like if you feel that. And I can tell you, as I've been meeting with several of you over the last few weeks, it does feel like to me as a pastor here, as a shepherd here, that we have a lot of people in the wilderness. That as I have sat with you, with many of you, and I just asked a simple question, how are you doing um, it sounds like you are describing the wilderness that many of you in here are hurting, that God feels distant, that you feel alone, that you feel tired, that for some of you, maybe it's a sin that has such a tight grip on you that it feels like it's choking you. So these last few weeks, when I have prayed for you, when I pray for us, it has been God breathe life into us, yeah. breathe hope into us, satisfy our souls, turn this wilderness into a fruitful field and turn that field into a forest of joy. And here in this text, we find David, he's in the wilderness. And man, in this psalm, it's weighty. All throughout this text, he is pleading to God, satisfy me, help me, 
fill me. It's the stripping off of everything else but God so that he can be strengthened, so that he can be satisfied and sustained. So as we examine this man who has had everything stripped away from him, my prayer is that as we walk through it, that God would stir your soul, that God would stir your affections, that if you're sitting there and you're apathetic right now, you're frustrated, you're anxious, you're fearful, that God would wake you up to feel and to know he is so much better. He is so good. So let's start in verse one. He says, oh God, you are my God. So when David's life is falling apart, when everything has been stripped away, when he's in the wilderness, when hope feels bleak, what is the first thing he says to God? He says, God, you are my God. And that's such a simple thing to say, isn't it? It's, it's, it's such an easy moment when we're just reading our Bible to just pass by, to just skip over it. But it's actually a very important phrase. God, you are my God. That in this moment, David is reminding himself that God has established himself over David as the one and only true God for David. That there's a relationship at play here. It's no different when you look at someone that you love. Like I said earlier, when you look at someone you love and you say, you are my wife, you are my husband, you are my son, you are my Daughter, that's more than just a fact, right? Because within that phrase comes a million implications that there is a relationship at play and that relationship has weight and the foundation of David and God's relationship is a covenant, a covenant that cannot be broken. It roots all the way back to Abraham. In Genesis 17, seven, God told Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you, Abram, and your offspring after you. David, throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. And here's what he says, to be God to you, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So when David begins his prayer by saying, God, you are my God, that's more than just a passive statement. It's a declaration that there is a foundation here. There is a promise here. There is a relationship here. Because if you read this text, it looks like David's an emotional wreck, right? Like, He's just sobbing, God, you are my God, right? This is an emotional text. But underneath that emotion is a foundation that cannot be shaken, a foundation of promise, a foundation of proven faithfulness. And this is so important to understand that when life feels unstable, when it feels overwhelming, it would be good for us to stop and have a rhythm of saying, God, you are my God. And within that, there are a million implications that we let the realities of the promises of God, the realities of proven faithfulness sink into our souls that our relationship with God, it's not contractual. It's not something that can be broken. It's not something that can be stolen, that just like David, God has established a covenant with us through Christ. So when you are driven into the wilderness in life and it feels like you're treading trying desperately to swim up just to grasp some air, man, are you quick to declare, you know what? God, you are my God. Or are you quick to blame? Are you quick to blame God? Are you quick to blame others? Are you quick to blame your circumstances? Because God's not a piggy bank. He's not a slot machine. He's king. He's Lord. And he's friend. 
And that reality, and that reality that there is a relationship here, there is a covenant that cannot be broken, this psalm is centered on that hope, that hope for David that God will never forsake him. God will never betray him. And at the end of all things, he will surely save him. And if you are in Christ, like if you would call yourself a Christian, if you would say, yes, I believe that in my sin, I am dead. I am guilty before God. And it is right for him to pour his judgment and wrath on me. But God put on flesh in Christ, the Messiah. That Messiah lived a sinless life and he gave up his life on the cross. So when God looks at me, he does not see my sin but he sees the blood of someone innocent, an innocent savior covering me. And if I would believe that, then he adopts me as his son or his daughter. And I surrender every aspect of my life to him to now walk in faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you would agree with that, with what I just said, then God has made a covenant with you. He has made a covenant with you and it cannot be broken. It cannot be shaken. It cannot be stolen. It cannot be taken back. He welcomes you freely. He will not forsake you. He will not betray you, and he will save you. If you understand the implications of God's covenant with you, then to say, God, you are my God, it's more than just a phrase. It brings hope. It brings joy. It's worship. That phrase, man, if you mean it in your bones, God, you are my God, it's worship. And for that person who understands that relationship, that person will savor God. Savor. It's not a word we use a lot. But to savor means to taste something and enjoy it. Like when you eat a good meal, you savor it. Or you might be familiar with the phrase, savor the moment. You ever heard of that? Where you stop and you enjoy this moment. And the person who is in covenant relationship with God, and they are meant to savor God. That person will thirst for God. That person will feast on God. And in verses one through four here, we see David savor God, enjoy God by thirsting and fainting for God. Thirsting and fainting is the form of worship when God is distant, when God feels distant. And in verses five through nine, we see David savor God by feasting on God. Feasting is the form of worship when God is near. And so I want to look at both of those. This text is um, conveniently blocked out every four verses. So in verses one through four, we get a sense that God is distant from David. And David worships God by thirsting for God and fainting for God. That as God is far away from David, as David hides in the wilderness, God feels distant to David. And he says, God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And I wonder, I wonder if you would identify what David feels, that with each passing day, you feel your need for something more. You feel the weight of anxiety. You feel the weight of sadness or fear, or maybe it's just apathy. That as God feels more and more distant from you, your soul grows more and more tired. That your soul feels thirsty. Like when he says, a dry and weary land where there is no water. You feel that every day. At the end of the day, you feel exhausted and God feels like a distant friend that you have not savored in a while. 
if that's you, I want to invite you to do something. And I went back and forth with uh, God on if I should do this or not. So I am going to ask you to be vulnerable for a moment. But if you would identify with these first couple verses, if you feel like this, that in this season of life, God feels distant. If you identify with the statement, I am in a dry and weary land where there is no water. water. If your soul feels tired, I want to invite you to raise your hand. Raise your hand if you feel like that. Yeah. Yeah, keep them up. Keep them up. Look around. Look around. This left side's struggling over here. Right? <laughs> Look around. I bet you thought you were alone. You can put them down. I bet you thought you were the only one who felt that way. You're not. You're not. I find that phrase, my flesh faints for you, very interesting because I think most of us, um, we assume that everyone else comes to this place feasting on God. But the reality, reality is most of us come to this place very thirsty. We come to this place fainting for God. We feel to the, come to this place feeling very unsatisfied. And it's comforting to know that we're not the only ones. I love verse 2 he uses the word so. In light of this, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. What does David do when God feels distant? What does he do when he feels thirsty? How does David savor God in the midst of that thirst? He focuses his mind and his attention in worship. He beholds, he, he ponders, he considers God's power, he considers God's glory. And here's David in the wilderness. There's no temple, there's no sanctuary, and David remembers what it was like to gather with, God, gather with God's people to worship. He remembers those moments of satisfaction, those moments of awe and wonder as he worshiped God because we all come to this place thirsty. We come to this place fainting. And too many times, we forget the purpose of this. We forget the purpose of this gathering, that this gathering is not for you to be entertained by a bunch of really good musicians and an average speaker. You don't gather with God's people as a consumer where you only buy the product if it's sold well enough. We gather in this place to have our thirst quenched. We gather in this place to be filled, to turn our fainting for God to feasting on God, that this hour and a half we have together can be wasted so easily. And I would venture to say that it is wasted in a lot of churches, that it can be tempting to make this time about entertainment. It's tempting to make this time about how good the band was or how well I kept your attention with a funny joke, but this time is not about me. And this time, this time isn't even about you. I don't know if you knew that. This time isn't even about you. This time is about God that our souls are thirsty, our flesh is fainting, and I cannot satisfy that in you. Your spouse, your friend, they cannot satisfy that in you. You cannot satisfy that in you. The only one that can satisfy that feeling is God. It's the gospel. That when we gather together, we would look to God to fill our souls with hope, that we would drink in his word, that we would feast on his love, so that when we walk through the wilderness throughout the week, God would create a rhythm we would remember what it was like to feast on him, to drink in his word, and it would create a rhythm of worship in our lives. So even when God feels distant, even when we feel that we are alone, it's so important that we never, never lose our thirst 
for God. Because thirsting for God, desiring God, that in itself is worship. That longing for God, that in itself is worship. So we praise him even when he feels distant. That it's in that place that you worship. He says in verse 3, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Even though God feels distant, David knows his God. David knows that even though he is alone in the wilderness, that he cannot find anything anywhere that is as good as God. And the only place he can find satisfaction is not by rejecting God and running away from God, but it's running to God. It's in praising God. It's in worship. He worships because he knows that God's steadfast covenant love is better than anything else. So he worships even when he is thirsty, even though his flesh is fainting because it's in the thirsting and the fainting that he knows, that he knows that God will come near. It's even in that that he knows God will satisfy. And so he says in verse four, so I will bless you as long as I live in your name, I will lift up my hands. So we savor God by blessing God, especially when we don't feel like it. When life is difficult, when we're anxious, when we're fearful that we would lift up our hands and declare to God, I need you. I think it's tempting to look around um, during worship and assume that the only people raising their hands are people whom God feels near to them. The only people who raise their hands are the people who have it all together. But the raising of your hands is not only for those who are feasting on God, but it's also for those who God feels distant. For those who would declare, God, where are you? Where are you? I thirst for you. I faint for you. I need you. And I pray that God would create a culture here where it's normal for us, for the people who are feasting and for the people who are thirsty, for everyone, for that we would be a place where we lift our hands because we need him, because we desire to feast on him. The corporate declaration that we as a people need him, that we need God. So first, we worship when he feels distant by thirsting and fainting for God. And second, we worship God when he feels near, by feasting on God. He says in verse five, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. And here you begin to see both the contrast of worship when God feels distant and when God feels near. But you also see how the thirsting and the fainting, when you're thirsting and fainting, that what God does is he actually, it actually results in God coming near to you. That David is unsatisfied in verse one, but longing. And his unsatisfaction turns to satisfaction in verse five. He says, his soul is satisfied as with fat and rich food. Like you ever had a meal that was so good that time literally stopped? You ever had that happen? Just me? Okay. Um, and, and you were so obsessed with how satisfying the food is that you just kind of, everything else just faded away into the background. Someone invited us over uh, for dinner this week, and they made me and Katie um, the most juiciest, glorious steak I've had in a long time. And you ever had that moment where you felt like your body just started to float out of the chair? and you were in a different realm altogether. Um, like for about five minutes, I, I completely disappeared from the conversation. And 
when I finished the steak, I had to like take a second to like figure out what was happening because I had completely lost track of the conversation. And I was like, wait, 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 what are we talking about? Right? You ever had that happen? I know it's a silly joke, but that's what he's talking about here. That's the analogy that he uses, that the things of this world would disappear in light of how rich and satisfying he is. And then he says, my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Now, remember, in verse 3, he said, my lips will praise you. But notice in here in verse 5, he adds a very important word. He adds the word joyful. And it's the reality that if we thirst for God, that if we praise God in times of thirst, when the land feels dry, when circumstances are hard, that our thirsting will turn to feasting. And it's in that place that we will have joy. So on one hand, he says, my lips will praise you. He's thirsting, he's fainting. But as God comes near and he begins to feast, he says, my lips will praise, my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. There are seasons when it feels dry. And as you thirst for him and you hunger for him and you faint for him, he comes near and you begin to feast on him and God brings joy. And then verse six, when he says, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, we can only assume that David was restless in the wilderness. It's cold, it's lonely. And David feasts on God by remembering him and meditating on him. And here we see the two ways of worship work together. That is David thirsts and faints on God, that his desire for God drives him to remember God and meditate on God. And so he says, for, as he remembers and he meditates, he says, you have been my help. In the shadow of wings, I will sing for joy. That as David feasts on God, he realizes that God has always been there. He's always been there. He's always been there to protect him, to fulfill him, to satisfy him. In his times of thirsting, God has come near to him. And he realizes that God has never left me. And he's able to sing with joy. And friends, I feel like I need to say this. I mean, it's a very simple truth, and you know this in your mind. But I think some of us in the hard circumstances of life, we forget it. Like, God has never left you. He has, he has, he has not forsaken you. He is a friend to you. And even now, if you feel like you're in the desert, he is with you. And he will not leave you. You may feel alone, but you're not. And so he says in verse 8, he says, my soul, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. And here we see our role and God's role, that as we cling to him, he holds on to us. As we reach out to bring him near, he moves towards us. As we thirst for him and faint for him, he moves towards us so that we can feast on him. So the question I have um, before I close is what do you savor? What do you enjoy? Because the person of Christ, the person covered by the blood of Christ, that person savors God, but that doesn't always mean that you have it all together. That there are times when you savor God by thirsting for him, fainting for him when he's distant. But you know, you, you know that he's better than life. And so you raise your hands, you, you sing his songs, you, you pray and you say, God, I need you, I need you, I need you. But then there are times when it feels like you are so satisfied. And you know this, many of you know this too, you've had that season of life where he is so satisfying, you just lose yourself in how good he is. You can't stop reading 
your Bible. You can't stop praying. You're feasting, you're feasting. You don't want worship to end. Those two things work together. And so if God is distant to you, as we take communion in a second and we sing songs, man, just raise your hands and say, God, I need you. I thirst for you. I faint for you. And the promise is that he will come near. On his own timing, he will come near. And so friends, may we be a church that savors God, that we would not savor a building, that we would not savor entertainment, we would not savor what we think makes us look good, that the thing that we as a people, as a faith family savor is the grace of God, the glory of God, and the gospel of Christ. That that's what we would be about, that we would enjoy and savor nothing else.